Minnie Rayford Williams was only seven years old when she became an orphan. Her father died in a freak train accident in 1872, and her mother died only a few months after. Her brother, Baldwin, and her sister, Nanny, then barely a year old, stayed in Mississippi with their next of kin, but Minnie was sent to live with her uncle in Dallas, Texas, and within a few years, he was dead too. Her uncle was an accomplished doctor, and he'd amassed a sizable estate over the years, all of which he bequeathed to his young orphan niece. It was more than just a cash inheritance, though. At the age of 10, Minnie Rayford Williams became the deed holder of multiple properties in the DFW area, including an especially promising block of real estate in the middle of downtown Fort Worth, valued at what today would be more than a quarter million dollars. It was more than enough to live on, but Minnie had ambitions beyond monetary comfort. She enrolled in Mansfield Male and Female College in her mid-teens and threw herself completely into her studies in the field of elocution, what these days we might call communication arts. She was a romantic in the classical sense. She idealized the life of the artist and she wanted more than anything to become a professional actress. By all accounts, she was a brilliant, ambitious, dedicated student. And by all those same accounts, she was a fiercely independent loner with no friends. And she liked it that way. Minnie was something of an oddity for her time, a perfect example of what the trendy cosmopolitan types up in New York were calling the new woman, a term popularized by author Henry James and what a century later would come to be known as first wave feminism. From the founding of the Republic in 1836, single women in Texas were afforded the right to buy and sell property, sue and be sued, and other basic civil rights, aside from voting, of course. Married women, on the other hand, had essentially the same rights as children. Their husbands exercised near-complete legal control over their finances and affairs, and the so-called matron had no legal say in the matter. So it's not really a surprise that Minnie Williams, like a lot of new women, preferred her liberty and autonomy to the subservience of matrimony. After she graduated from Mansfield, she spent some time in Boston and took the stage for the first time in community theater productions while she furthered her education. She came home to Texas in 1889, where her sister Nanny, whom she hadn't seen in more than 15 years, was waiting for her. Nanny was too young at the time of their separation to even have a memory of her sister, but Minnie paid her tuition through school and they moved in together at Minnie's property in the Dallas neighborhood of Oak Cliff with a lot of catching up to do. According to people who knew her, Nanny was the quote, reverse of Minnie. She was a deeply devout Christian, quiet, modest, and quote, docile easily persuaded. Needless to say, reporters who later recounted knowing the sisters were a little more favorable to Nanny in their write-ups than they were to her headstrong sister. The next year, Minnie enrolled in postgraduate studies at the New England Conservatory to study acting, but she was burning through her inheritance fast. Her one-time guardian, longtime friend, and current financial agent, J.J. Massey, was getting concerned. But she ignored his warnings and instructed him to sell off a portion of the property downtown for $6,000 so she could start her own theater company in Boston. But for all her exceptional skill in oration and singing, Minnie kinda sucked at acting, and the venture folded within a few short weeks. Discouraged and disillusioned, she moved to Denver in June of 1892 and tried to figure out where the hell to go from here. And aside from visiting her estranged brother, Minnie seemingly went down there to take out some frustrations. She was arrested in the aftermath of a six-woman barroom brawl, where she knocked a woman named Gussie Hayes unconscious with a bottle, slicing a deep gash across her face and very nearly killing her. Only a few months after her brief stint in jail, her brother Baldwin was killed in a smelting accident, leaving Minnie with a fresh supply of insurance money and without a reason to stay. 
Minnie Rayford Williams buried her dreams there in Denver, Colorado, and resigned herself to the inescapable tedium of an average life. In early January 1893, she moved to Chicago, Illinois to settle for a job as a stenographer. She'd only been there a couple of months before she started sending letters to her sister Nanny back in Texas, gushing about her engagement to a man she'd just met, Harry Gordon. He was a doctor, she said, and quote, get plenty of money. Minnie urged Nanny to come visit and meet the wonderful Dr. Gordon in Chicago, just in time for the 1893 World's Fair. It was the year they'd showcase the first Ferris wheel, the first public movie theater, the first Midway, not to mention the debut of Juicy Fruit Gum and Paps Blue Ribbon Beer. It seemed really out of character for Minnie, but Nanny was overjoyed for her. Never in a million years did she think her sister would so much as tolerate a man escorting her across the street, much less down the aisle. When Nanny arrived in Chicago that June, her sister was presenting herself as already married to the handsome and impressive Dr. Gordon. But there's no record of the marriage having ever taken place, and even if it had, it wouldn't have been legal. After all, the good doctor was already married to two other women, and Harry Gordon wasn't his real name. He was born Herman Webster Mudgett, but over the next two years, the world would come to know him by another name, H.H. Holmes. I'm Ryan Sheffield, and this is a Texarkana Shortcut. H.H. Holmes is kind of having a moment right now. A 2003 novel about him, The Devil in the White City, was a massive bestseller, and Hulu is currently adapting it for the screen. Evan Peters' character, Mr. March, in American Horror Story Hotel, was inspired heavily by Holmes, and there's a popular documentary about him on Netflix subtitled America's First Serial Killer. But that title isn't really accurate. Holmes was a lot of things, a pathological liar, a swindler, a grifter, a con man, a creep, a womanizer, a petty, self-absorbed, vengeful narcissist, and a murderer many times over. But he wasn't, in the true definition of the term, a serial killer. One reporter inadvertently put it best when he said, quote, Holmes was the most perfect incarnation of abysmal and abnormal wickedness to pass from history into the lurid vagueness of legend. And when there's a dearth of detailed records mixed up with a deluge of tabloid sensationalism, hearsay, embellishment, and Holmes' own propensity to lie about pretty much everything, after 125 years, it's hard to sort out the factual history from the lurid vagueness of legend. H.H. Holmes may not have been America's first serial killer, but he may very well have been America's last tall tale. If you're not familiar with the popular lore surrounding Holmes, the official synopsis of that documentary I talked about earlier covers it pretty well. Quote, H.H. Holmes was a master manipulator whose handsome exterior and disarming charm masked a psychotic soul bent on torture and dismemberment. The clean-cut killer's deceptively inviting outward appearance made it easy for him to lure women back to his mammoth castle in Chicago's burgeoning Inglewood neighborhood, a trip from which many would never return. Holmes purchased a large lot for the supposed purpose of building a hotel that would house guests attending the massive Chicago World's Fair. A complex maze of blind hallways, treacherous chutes, and airtight rooms in which Holmes would gas his intended victims. The foreboding structure also housed a sub-level torture chamber complete with stretching rack, quick lime pits, and an incinerator that was perfect for disposing of human bodies. Though the structure, commonly known by locals as Holmes's murder castle, would eventually burn to the ground, to this day no one truly knows the number of victims who suffered within the confines of its dark walls. 
for the record, I had to correct at least four syntax errors in that just to make it readable. But you'll find similar yarns spun ad nauseum in blog posts, TV shows, true crime podcasts, and even purported history books, many of them placing Holmes's body count in the hundreds. But as Chicago-based author Adam Selzer detailed exhaustively in his book, The True History of the White City Devil, almost none of it is true. There's definitely not time in this podcast to get into all of it. After all, this is Tex Arcana, not Ill Arcana. So I highly recommend checking out Selzer's book if you want the full story. But it's important for me to give you a quick rundown of the backstory here for historical context. Not just because I'm a total info junkie for this kind of stuff, but also because the so-called murder castle in Chicago wasn't the only one Holmes built. Another, twice the size of the original, was smack dab in the middle of downtown Fort Worth. Herman Webster Mudgett was born in New Hampshire in 1861. Around age 16, he married a young woman named Clara and had a son named Robbie. To support his new family, he took a job apprenticing under his uncle, an acclaimed and controversial professor of anatomy who may or may not have moonlighted as a resurrectionist, someone who dug up bodies and sold them on the black market. After graduation, he moved to New York, leaving his wife and son behind, and quickly garnered a reputation for stiffing people and evading debts. And then, of course, there were the scams. He forged letters from imaginary sick relatives to avoid paying rent. He stole a box of smallpox vaccines during an outbreak and impersonated a government official to sell them to people in small towns, claiming they were mandatory. He agreed to perform surgery on a dying Civil War vet, but stole two of the man's ribs and held the bones for ransom. And all of that was just in the course of one year. Herman Mudgett left New York in the fall of 1885, and it was the last time he'd ever go by his real name. He decided to try his luck in Chicago. He got a pharmacist license using an alias, the first ever documented appearance of a man named H.H. Holmes. He then went to Horton's Drugstore down on 63rd Street to inquire about a job. According to most peddlers of Holmes lore, the pharmacy was owned by an elderly couple, Dr. E.S. Horton and his wife, and Holmes targeted the store because it was so close to the location of the upcoming World's Fair. Holmes preyed on the couple's kindness and naivete, earning their trust, until one day, the Hortons mysteriously disappeared, but not before they'd sold the business to Holmes for a fraction of what it was worth. Their bodies, they say, were never found. And it turns out there's good reason for that. The elderly couple weren't dead, and they didn't vanish. Hell, they weren't even elderly. The ES and Dr. ES Horton stood for Elizabeth Sarah, a doctor in her mid-twenties who ran the pharmacy with the help of her equally young husband, which kind of says something about the misogynistic bent of folklore and its evolution, but I digress. Oh, and this all happened long before the World's Fair was even booked in Chicago, so there's that. Holmes made a point to steal things from the store every time he left his shift, depleting their stock over time and effectively devaluing the business as a whole. It was a grift, for sure, but as far as anyone could tell, he paid for the place legally, and surprisingly for him, in full. In spring of 1887, Holmes married a woman named Murda, despite still being legally married to his wife back in New Hampshire. He used the money he was making from the drugstore to buy the property right across the street and hired architects to begin drawing up plans for the building that would eventually come to be known as the Murder Castle. One thing the legend gets right is that the castle was chock full of weird rooms, secret compartments between the two floors, and a staircase that could only be accessed by a trap door. What they neglect to mention is that they weren't a secret. Employees at the drugstore used them for storage and quick access to other parts of the building. They even slept in them sometimes. 
Chicago was booming at the time, despite and in spite of the devastating fire 15 years before, and the city inspectors were too overwhelmed to look at anything all that closely, so Holmes took advantage. Not so he could build some labyrinthine death dungeon, so much as a shoddy warehouse for swindling investors and stashing stolen goods. He ran bond schemes to defraud companies, sold fake discount cards for local retailers, even rigged up city pipes to deliver lake water into the basement of the building, poured chemicals into it to change the color and taste, then sold it as, quote, healing mineral water. And if you're a fan of this show and you've been looking forward to our upcoming episode four, consider that a teaser. Holmes was a master at tricking people into selling him things on credit and then refusing to pay. Some of it he sold off, some he hid in the secret rooms, and some things, like his walk-in safes, were installed in such a way that they couldn't be removed by repo men without damaging the building, something the notoriously litigious Holmes warned them wasn't in their best interest to do. One of the more famous nuggets of Holmes' lore is that he routinely fired contractors after only a few weeks on the job, bringing in a constant stream of replacements as part of a diabolical master plan to ensure that no one but him could truly know the full layout of the castle. But the truth is that he didn't fire the contractors at all, much less kill them, as some sources claim. They simply walked off the job after a few weeks of not getting paid for their work. He was involved in so many lawsuits, under so many different names, even historians have pretty much given up on sorting through them all. According to Selzer's research, Holmes had, quote, a list of people with liens, claims, and mortgages on the building, several pages long, and that was before the castle was even finished. And then, of course, there was the whole murder thing. The first deaths that can be truly attributed to him were those of Julia Connor, the wife of the drugstore in-house jeweler, and their six-year-old daughter, Pearl. Julia had been having an affair with Holmes, one she didn't even bother to hide from her husband. She got pregnant, and Holmes attempted to perform an abortion, but he botched it, and she died in surgery. Abortion, of course, was prosecuted as murder at the time, so even if Julia's death was accidental, he had every reason to cover it up. And rather than leave open a loose end by letting her daughter go, he poisoned the little girl's food, dismembered her corpse, and buried her in the castle basement. His next victim was a young typist named Emily Seagrind. Again, he struck up an affair, even faked a wedding ceremony for her. But Emmeline got tired of his secrecy and sneaking around, and she was starting to talk to people around town. No one knows exactly how she died, most likely by poisoning. But sometime in December 1892, Holmes carted her body out of the castle in a trunk, rode out of town, and came back without any luggage. With that taken care of, he and pretty much everyone else in Chicago set their sights on reaping as much profit as they could from the newly announced World's Fair. Holmes decided to expand his castle with a third floor that would serve as a hotel for tourists who would check in, but never check out. Just kidding, like pretty much everything Holmes did, it was just another scam. It's true that the third floor did have secret passages and closets with two doors that might have allowed for eavesdropping, but all that ultimately didn't matter. The guests never checked out because they never checked in in the first place. None of the rooms were even furnished. There was no staff. There wasn't even a front desk. Holmes only built the so-called hotel so he could burn it down and collect the insurance money. And a few months later, that's exactly what he did. It was around that time that Holmes met a brilliant young woman from Texas, Minnie Williams. Holmes says he met her at an employment agency in Chicago, where he hired her on as his secretary. Although, like most stories Holmes told, the details often changed, became embellished, or turned out to be straight-up lies. Regardless, she started spending a lot of time around the castle as an employee, even though none of the other employees ever saw her do any actual work. 
She was almost certainly involved in at least a few of his schemes, including asking Massey, her financial agent, for $2,500 in March of 1893. He advised her against it, but she insisted, so he sold a portion of her land in Fort Worth and sent her a check. It was cashed just two days later, endorsed with a signature that didn't look at all like hers. She also took out a sizable loan, payable to one Horace A. Williams, claiming it was her brother. But she only had one brother, Baldwin, and he was very dead. Selzer speculates that she knew Holmes was a swindler the whole time and was only involved with him because she wanted a piece of the action. Only money could set her free from the doldrum life she felt doomed to live out, and Holmes had money, or at least he knew how to get it. There's a good chance their touted marriage was nothing more than a sham ceremony in which Holmes thought he was scamming Minnie, or they were both lying, or just as plausibly, she thought she was the one scamming him. Whatever it was, kind, trusting Nanny seemed none the wiser. She wrote to a friend back in Arlington, Texas, gushing about Brother Harry, one of the best men she ever met. Needless to say, she was very, very wrong about that. On July 5th, 1893, the landlord came by the sister's apartment and found it abandoned and in disarray. The next day, a trunk full of Nanny's luggage arrived at the train depot from Texas, and no one ever came to claim it. Minnie and Nanny Williams had simply disappeared, and no one, credibly anyway, would ever report seeing them alive or dead again. Within 12 hours of their apparent disappearance, someone made several legal and financial transactions under Minnie's name. Apparently, Holmes knew all about Minnie's property down in Fort Worth, and he had big plans for it. A month later, Holmes removed all the doorknobs, fixtures, and valuables from the third floor of the castle and took a carriage out of town for the day on business, moments before the hotel burst into flames. It didn't take long for the insurance companies to figure out they were paying out on arson to a man who didn't even exist. With creditors, contractors, collection agencies, and now the police hot on his heels, Holmes decided it might be as good a time as any to live out his lifelong fantasy of being a Wild West outlaw. He might have been a couple of decades late to live out that dream for real, but Texas was still close enough. In January 1894, he left Murda and their daughter behind and hopped a train to Denver to marry yet another woman, and more importantly, to scam 500 bucks out of Minnie's insurance company. And from there, it was on to Fort Worth, Texas to meet up with his most trusted associate, Benjamin Patezel. Patezel was an ugly, scummy-looking man with a bad drinking problem, but he was fiercely loyal to Holmes, and that's all that mattered. While Holmes was busy setting fire to his own castle, Patezel was busy getting busted in Indiana for forging thousands of dollars in checks, almost certainly at the direction of Holmes. Holmes bailed him out of jail, and the two immediately got to work on their next big scheme, swindling Minnie's estate in Texas and using a medical cadaver to fake Patezel's death for the insurance money. Patezel came to Fort Worth a few weeks ahead of his boss and went straight to the Tarrant County Clerk's office. Two months before the Williams sisters disappeared, Minnie apparently transferred the deed for her Fort Worth property to a man named A.E. Bond for a payment of just $1. A.E. Bond then transferred it to a man named B.T. Lyman for no payment at all. And now, B.T. Lyman, an ugly, scummy-looking man, stinking of whiskey in the middle of the afternoon, was here to finalize the paperwork. It sounds a little suspicious, sure, but the Tarrant County clerk didn't see anything in the paperwork that seemed out of order. After all, it had been notarized and even vouched for in a letter from the clerk in Cook County. But as you might expect, info security kind of sucked in the 1890s. A.E. Bonds didn't exist. The letter from Cook County was a forgery, and the notary on the paperwork was, of course, Harry H. Holmes, Esquire. 
Minnie likely had no idea the deed transfer even happened. Or maybe she did, but shucks, she just wasn't around to contest it. Patezel, or rather, Mr. Lyman, immediately got to work on the new property at the corner of 2nd and Rusk Street, and the foundation was already poured by the time Holmes arrived in Texas. As soon as he did, Patezel officially listed a man named O.C. Pratt as the head of construction. O.C. Pratt, of course, was H.H. Holmes. Holmes handled all the purchasing himself, buying only the cheapest material he could find, and only on credit. It only took a few weeks for the contractor's paychecks to start bouncing. Workers walked off the job just like they did in Chicago, and new ones had to be hired for each individual job, one at a time. According to the Galveston Daily News, not one of them was ever paid in full. While it's rare for the Fort Worth Castle to get much attention in popular homes lore, when it does, it's usually considered something of a vacation murder castle, a place he could use to satiate his murderous compulsions until things finally blew over in Chicago. But according to Seltzer, and just a layman's reading of the facts, the real plan was pretty obvious. Use the prestige of a downtown property to attract investors and get easy loans, then ditch the place and never pay anything back. And that's more or less exactly what they did. Holmes may not have had a compulsion to kill, but he sure as hell seemed to have a compulsion to scam. No matter how petty, unprofitable, or just plain dumb the grift might be, he immediately started up his favorite scheme of buying bicycles on credit from local retailers, then reselling them and never paying the debt. But both he and Patezel quickly discovered that the bicycle grift could be a lot more lucrative when applied to a much more taxing commodity, horses. No one knows for sure what they did with the animals, but what is certain is that these two Yankee crooks supremely underestimated the seriousness with which Texans regard the theft of a man's horse. And in May 1894, all their scams and misdeeds seemed to catch up with them all at once. Minnie's friends were talking to the police about her as a missing person. The Cook County Clerk's Office had been tipped off to a fraudulent notary named Holmes, and a grand jury investigation was launched into Mr. O.C. Pratt regarding the matter of horse theft. But by the time the indictment came down, Holmes and Patezel were long gone. They'd pocketed all the borrowed cash and hightailed it to St. Louis. The Fort Worth Castle was just left there, never officially opened or occupied. Meanwhile, Holmes and Patezel were up to their usual tricks, and within a few weeks, Holmes was arrested in St. Louis for fraud and selling mortgaged goods. He somehow managed to talk his way out of jail and fled by train to New York and then to Pennsylvania to rendezvous with Patezel. Holmes was still on board to rip off Fidelity Mutual for the life insurance money, but he opted for a slight change in the plan. Maybe it was too much trouble to procure a cadaver, or maybe he just soured on the idea of splitting the hall, whatever it was. On September 2nd, 1894, Holmes went to Patezel's rented room in Philly with a rag soaked in chloroform and held it over his friend's mouth and nose until he went limp. He moved Patezel's wife, Carrie, along with their five children, frantically all over the country, even to Canada, all the while keeping everyone in the dark about Benjamin's death. In this crazy shell game he was playing to secure the family's life insurance money, he managed to murder three of the Patezel children, all with poison. He then dismembered their bodies, burying the two girls in the basement of a rented house in Toronto, and burning the boy in a potbelly stove. Most modern lore says he killed the girls by pumping gas into a sealed trunk, but there wasn't even a gas hookup in the house where he killed them. He probably just poisoned their food. In fact, there's good reason to believe that nearly everyone Holmes ever killed died painlessly, quickly. It wasn't a sociopathic compulsion to kill. It was just business. How those two motives could ever possibly be confused is just totally beyond me. Holmes' ultimate goal was to get the money and flee to Berlin, but he still had three patezels left to bump off, 
and the Pinkerton's detective agency, Fidelity Mutual's PIs, and police in at least four states were shadowing his every move, closing in. They all knew Holmes was their guy. They just didn't have the evidence they needed to bring him in. The Boston police had gotten wind that Holmes was active in Texas, so they sent a telegram to Sheriff Rhea in Fort Worth. They got a response fast, and it was only four words long, larceny of one horse. A warrant was issued, and Holmes was arrested in Boston as a horse thief on November 17, 1895. Everyone who was after him all showed up, and when Holmes saw them, he immediately threw up his hands in surrender, telling them he'd gladly go to trial in Philly for faking someone's death to commit fraud if it meant he didn't have to go to jail in Texas for stealing a horse. While in his jail cell, Holmes busied himself making up stories, bragging about crimes that never happened, lying about those that did, and trying to convince investigators that he was a powerful hypnotist. He was a born entertainer and seemed to relish any chance he got to talk about himself and brag about his many criminal accomplishments, real or otherwise. At some point, the authorities informed him that the Williams sisters had gone missing, and he immediately started talking. Yes, he knew them. Yes, he housed them. Yes, in a fit of rage, Minnie brained Nanny with a stool. And yes, he helped her dispose of the body by sinking it in a trunk full of rocks in Lake Michigan. He said Minnie needed money to flee the country, so out of the goodness of his heart, he took the Fort Worth property off her hands for a low price so she could make her escape. Though he mostly stuck to his fake story for the next year of the investigation, he eventually got wishy-washy on it, saying they were both dead, both alive, or that he didn't know them at all and just made up the story for fun. When the trial started in May, he pleaded not guilty, but then quickly changed his mind and switched his plea to guilty once he realized that he only faced a maximum of two years in prison for the fraud charge. If he was somehow acquitted, Sheriff Ray would be waiting for him with handcuffs, and he'd rather rot than face the wrath of Texas. At least until a man in Toronto, having read about the trial in the paper, contacted the authorities. He said he recognized the defendant. In fact, he'd once, recently, loaned him a shovel. Toronto police excavated the rent house's cellar and found the bones of two young girls buried three feet down. When the news got back to Holmes, he said, quote, Well, I guess they'll hang me for this. Meanwhile, the castle's second floor was abandoned, and the third floor was sealed off entirely for public safety. Of course, that only served to fan the flames of a rumor mill that had already been engulfed in a five-alarm blaze. The Chicago police had been forced to restructure the entire department in the wake of a major corruption scandal, and the new chief of police, a purely political appointment, had no idea what the hell he was doing, like at all. His first major action was to launch a search and investigation of the castle property from top to bottom, which was definitely the right move, but the new chief hadn't quite shed his political obsession with optics and flattering press. So he gave literally any and all reporters unrestricted, unmonitored access to the building, a crime scene, and not only allowed them to cover the search firsthand, but let them actively participate in it. So with the castle full of corrupt and rookie police led by a deeply ignorant political hack flanked by hordes of scoop-hungry journalists literally tearing the place apart, the reports being churned out to the public were beyond derisory. And almost everything we commonly associate with the so-called murder castle today can be traced directly back to that circus of an investigation. Every day there was a new headline, all caps and punctuated with a loaded question mark, and nearly all of it was, well, as one of Holmes's shady lawyers put it at the time, quote, fucking rot. A sketch of the castle's floor plan was published in the Chicago Tribune with all the rooms labeled with spooky, fanciful names like the Death Shaft, 
the maze, the asphyxiation chamber, the black closet, the hanging secret chamber, the dummy elevator for lowering bodies, and my personal favorite, the room of the three corpses. The existence of all the secret rooms, weird passages, staircases, and trap doors is an undisputed fact, but their sinister legacy was written in newspaper ink, not blood. There was no secret crematorium, it was just a weird prototype furnace he built to scam investors with a fraudulent glass-bending business. There was no asphyxiation chamber, it was just an elaborate scam to dodge his utility bills. There was no torture rack or dissection table, it was just a bench with some stains on it. There were no rooms full of rotting corpses, no skeleton bleaching tanks, no acid vats for disposing of human bodies. Those were all just the imaginative inventions of a fake witness who threw himself into the trial proceedings for the media attention. The police, and presumably a bunch of randos, finally made an actual discovery. They unearthed a bed of quicklime in the basement, a component used in cement at the time, and more importantly, in burials to help mitigate the smell of decomposing bodies. With a little more digging, they turned up some hair, bits of tattered clothing, and 17 human bones. His idiot lawyer claimed the bodies were just cadavers for his insurance scams, but he kinda undercut his own credibility when he went on to imply that the real killer was President Benjamin Harrison, cause why not? On November 30th, 1895, the judge declared Herman W. Mudgett guilty of murder and sentenced him to be hanged by the neck until he was dead and may God have mercy on his soul. And it's around that time that the Texas press finally started digging around into the castle on 2nd and Rusk. The Fort Worth building was a near identical replica of the Chicago castle, but it was twice the size and featured conical spires around the perimeter. The Dallas Morning News was at least a little more subdued in the naming of the rooms than their Chicago counterpart had been. The dark closet, the nest of doors and passages, the room of many pipes. The Galveston Daily News said that if this had been the Middle Ages, the structure would surely have been known as the Castle of Many Doors, and it would have been an apt name. The building had 67 rooms, with a grand total of 282 doors, 12 in one room alone. Oh, and there was an artisanal well in the back. Teaser. Holmes's appeal to the state Supreme Court was rejected, and the governor set the execution date for May 7, 1896. Multiple outlets offered the condemned Holmes a ton of money to write a confession, and he did it. Knowing he was doomed, he leaned into his rep as a monster, and he detailed completely fake scenarios for all his murders, and even confessed to 18 more that were just made up using names he'd gleaned from newspaper articles and obituaries. But the New York world ran with it, spreading much of the legend we know today. And here's the kicker, they didn't actually bother to read his confession before going to press with the story. They just made up their own. In fact, Holmes's most famous quote came from the fake publication of his fake confession. Yes, I was born with the devil in me. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer no more than the poet can help the inspiration to a song, nor the ambition of an intellectual man to be great. I was born with the evil one standing as my sponsor beside the bed where I was ushered into the world, and he has been with me ever since. He never said it, but it didn't matter. The story was out. Some papers went even further, claiming he was physically transforming in his cell, taking on the characteristics of the devil, tail and all, literally. For his part, Holmes facilitated it all. As far as he was concerned, if he was going to be remembered forever as a murderer, he damn well better be remembered as the greatest murderer of all time. After all, his personal motto was, mediocrity is nothing, and in a way, we've let him win. As far as killers go, he was mediocre. He wasn't a devil with a lust for blood. He was just a scummy fraud of a businessman living in a time when it was still easier to get away with murder than it was to just pay your mistresses some hush money. 
The papers wanted a sensational story, Holmes said, and I gave it to them. Meanwhile, the press was doing its misogynistic best to discredit and defame the victims. The Dallas Morning News published long articles about the Williams sisters, quoting people who said Nanny couldn't be dead because she was too modest and good to have put herself in such a dangerous situation. Minnie, however, was asking for it. Maybe she shouldn't have been so, quote, selfish with the boys. On May 7th, 1896, Holmes stood on the scaffolds and gave a short speech that ended with the contradictory pronouncement, I have never committed murder. That is all I have to say. It wasn't a clean hanging, and his body spun and swung and convulsed for minutes before going still. Two spectators fainted at the sight. Once he was confirmed deceased, his body was lowered into a casket full of cement and taken to the cemetery, where the next day a massive crowd gathered for the burial, excitedly anticipating some ghostly supernatural spectacle at the funeral for a devil. But instead, Holmes's casket, which took 25 men to lift, was dropped into a 10-foot-deep hole and covered in four barrels of cement. No gravestone or marker was ever placed. Within two months, the Chicago papers were already running conspiracy theories that he'd faked the execution and was alive and well in South America, living a quaint life as a coffee farmer. And in a way, that sort of story-building fanfiction was absorbed into canon over the next hundred years. It wasn't until the 1930s that anyone ever used the term murder castle, and it wasn't until the crime novels of the 1940s that the body count jumped into the hundreds. Some even claimed he had a device to stretch human bodies to twice their length for his nefarious master plan to create a race of giants. People still believe that stuff. Holmes' own great-great-grandson currently works the paranormal convention circuit, peddling his garbage books claiming Holmes traveled to Whitechapel, London for a few months to, you know, be Jack the Ripper. He didn't. As Selzer said, quote, Indeed the growth of Holmes' reputation as a supervillain may be his own final and greatest swindle. After Holmes' execution, both the Patezel and Williams estates claimed rightful ownership of the Fort Worth Castle. Eventually, they both settled, and the property was sold to a local lumber mogul, who renovated it to become a hotel. His venture didn't work out, but another hotel soon took over, St. Elmo's. The building caught fire in 1907, but it wasn't severely damaged. In 1918, it was taken over by the military during an outbreak of STIs among soldiers at nearby Camp Bowie. Local authorities and military leaders rounded up around 200 women and housed them against their will in the castle, calling it a, quote, detention center for women infected with social diseases. The following year, the castle burned again, but once again, it survived. Over the next few decades, it would be an auto sales and repair complex, a bicycle store, and a sandwich shop before being torn down for a paid parking lot in 1955. These days, folks from Fort Worth, whether they know it or not, know the so-called castle property fairly well. After all, it's the current location of the city's staple bar, the Flying Saucer. Texarkana is written and produced by us, Ryan Sheffield and Brad Dewar. We're gonna start releasing a podcast on the first of every month from now on, so please subscribe if you haven't already. If we have time to finish the script for episode four by October, then it'll be next. If not, Brad's got a hell of a shortcut for you. So either way, see you then. And thanks for listening, y'all.